1: the C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath.
0: You are listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premiere. I'm Ruth Jackson and over this third series Alistair and I will be looking at some of the key themes and ideas in the Narnia Chronicles. C.S. Lewis is one of the most influential voices in modern Christianity. The 20th century British writer and lay theologian has profoundly impacted Christians around the world and brought many atheists and agnostics to faith in Jesus. One person whose faith was greatly encouraged by the writings of C.S. Lewis is Professor Alastair McGrath. Both men were raised in Northern Ireland, studied at Oxford University and both came to faith from atheism slightly later in life. Alistair has written numerous books on C.S. Lewis, including a seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life, which is published by Hodder. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. Today's episode is an introduction to the Chronicles of Narnia, including how we should respond to some of the criticisms that have been levelled at the books. Well, Alistair McGrath, welcome back to the third series of the C.S. Lewis podcast. And for this third series, we're going to be focusing on the Narnia Chronicles. We'll come later to why it was ordered in, in such a way. Um, but just for the sake of argument, we are going to be looking at uh, in the order that the books are now published. But before we start looking at the specific books, which we're going to do over the rest of the series, would you say just a little bit about the context within which C.S. Lewis was writing? So. When did he start writing Narnia and kind of what was going on in his life at the time?
1: Well, really, Lewis began to write Narnia in the late 1940s and 1948. He was finished by March 19... 19- Fifty-four. So actually quite an extended process. And some of the works actually were quite difficult to write. For example, The Magician's Nephew. But it was a difficult period for, for Lewis because, um, let, me, let me just mention three things that were causing him a lot of distress. Number one, he wasn't getting on well with his Oxford colleagues. It was quite clear that um, he was being passed over for some quite significant academic promotions. Secondly, his brother had become an alcoholic. And that was a real problem for Lewis. He had to kind of almost be a carer to his brother. and also he's living with Mrs Moore and Mrs Moore was becoming demented and really becoming very very difficult to live with so what we could say I guess is that Lewis's professional and personal life was in a mess and many people wonder um, if he wrote Narnia as a kind of way of getting away from this, a kind of alternative world in which you could live during these very difficult times. But sometimes people will say, well look, difficult circumstances make for great literature and maybe that's the case here.
0: And why was it aimed specifically at children? Was that always the intention? Was it always meant to be written for children?
1: I think it was very much a series of books written for children. And maybe Lewis was reaching back to his own childhood because there were certain books that he read as a child that stayed in his memory. And I think that one of the things that is very important to appreciate here is actually Lewis very often wondered look i love books like squirrel nutkin when i was a kid but i didn't like religion very much is there any way we could use children's literature as a way of kind of way help people to see what is so exciting about christianity so i think there's a a complex range of issues here basically lewis feeling that Christ, children's literature is really important and also wanting to use this as a way of trying to say look think again about religion
0: And you mentioned religion there. Obviously, there's lots of Christian themes that are unpacked the whole way through the Narnia Chronicles. Would you share just some of those themes that come up? Obviously, we're going to be touching on them in more detail when we look at the specific books. But what are some of the key themes and what are some of the key messages that C.S. Lewis was trying to get across?
1: Well, obviously Lewis is saying we need to understand Christian ideas better. And you could say that the whole idea of creation, of incarnation, of salvation, all of those are explored throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. But for me, I think there are two themes which are both very Christian and do stand out. One is living in a world in which there are competing worldviews and that you can't very often prove that you are right. And again, very often in the Chronicles of Narnia, this theme, well, how do I know I'm right? I need reassurance that comes out very very clearly and lewis is actually trying to say look um faith is faith but you can find sources of strength to keep you going during these times of doubt but the other theme which is also very Christian, is that it's the little people that matter. (laughs) I think that's a very important point because uh, Lewis wants to try and say, look, that children actually are much more important than we think, and actually controversially at points, even animals. That's a point I'm sure we'll be coming back to as we discuss the series, but Lewis is really saying that Christianity brings about a reevaluation of things and of people. I think that's one of the reasons why he thought children's novels were so important. You could show that children mattered.
0: Was it always going to be a series or did he write one book as a kind of self-contained thing? How, how did that develop?
1: Now, that's an interesting question. I personally think he wrote The Lion, The Witch, in The Wardrobe and thought that's it. And actually, if you look at how it ends, it doesn't imply there's anything more to come. But actually, clearly, he had a, a sort of a spurt of creative genius and felt that I could do more with this. And I think that um, for me, um, Lewis basically began to realise the potential of this, so it expanded. I wonder, although I, I have no evidence to back this up really, if he kind of saw the line in the Witson Water was testing the water and feeling this worked and has been well received, let's keep going. And
0: what are some of the inspirations behind the series? There's so many different ideas. Where did some of those ideas come from for C.S. Lewis?
1: Well, some of them came from his own background. I think, for example, if you look at some of the character names he develops. I mean, for example, we, we know Lewis went to England to be taught by W.T. Kirkpatrick, and actually we rather feel that Professor Kirk in Narnia mm. is a sort of reflection of <laughs> this very important figure for Lewis. I think uh, there's a lot here. There's, there's obviously a lot of the ideas are rooted in both the Christian Bible, but also in the long history of Christian reflection on the Bible. And of course, Lewis knew that very well. From his uh, teaching in the field of English literature, but also I think that there's something else, and that, that is Lewis's. Um Lewis's geographical imagination, he, he loved reading Nordic myths, he, he knew about his own Northern Ireland with its geography, and very often you feel that, that his descriptions of places are taken from places he knew and works he knew. So actually Lewis is really bringing together a whole lot of ideas in his own very creative synthesis.
0: And a lot of the names don't sound at all English, do they? So they were probably not based on characters that he knew in England. I mean, do we know anything about some of the other names that C.S. Lewis employed for characters within the books at all?
1: Well, I saw one estimate that there were 200 names that had been created by Lewis and Narnia. And some of these are, are just um, things that Lewis thought sounded nice. Some of them are recognisable reworkings of Latin or Greek or sometimes French names. I think what Lewis really struggled to do was to find names for all the characters and places. And scholars, I think, feel that J.R.R. R. Tolkien was rather better at this than Lewis was. But Lewis tried his best, and actually some of them are really quite good, I think. Puddleglum is a great name, I think. <laughs>
0: It is a great name. Um, you mentioned Tolkien there. Uh, I heard a rumour that Tolkien thought that the Narnia Chronicles had too much explicit Christian imagery inside them. Is that true?
1: I think that uh, Tolkien felt that the Chronicles of Narnia were a bit in your face, if you know what I mean. I mean if you read Lord <laughs> of the Rings, it's very subtle about its Christian background. You have to look for it. It is there. Um, and I think that uh, Tolkien felt Lewis a kind of way, um, gone over the top a bit here. He also felt, I think, that some of the strategies that Lewis used for bringing Father Christmas into mm. the narrative, I mean, that was, to him that was just mad. <laughs> so I think what I have to say is that Tolkien was not a great admirer of Narnia, even though we know Lewis was a great admirer of the Lord of the Rings.
0: Now, this might be really difficult to define, but did Lewis have a favourite book within the series or even a favourite character? Do we do we know anything about that?
1: I'm not sure. I mean, um, I have I have I have thoughts about this. I, I think that um, Lucy does rather stand out mm-hmm. as a particularly significant character. Um, and I think that The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is so well written um, And again, may have been intended as a standalone. That makes me think that Lewis would point to that as the most significant element. However, it's very, very difficult to be sure because Lewis actually doesn't really spend much time thinking about these things. I think he's he's leaving it up to us to make our judgment of which character we think is most interesting and which book we think is most interesting. And actually in many ways, what's happening here is he's asking us to identify people. Who do we feel in Narnia we can relate to? And I think that's a very, very fair question.
0: So in which case that leads me very nicely to my next question, which would be, so do you have a favourite book or character, Alistair?
1: Well I have to say I have a favourite book, and you've probably guessed what it is from what I've said already, <laughs> which is it's the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, because I feel that uh, that generates a sense of expectation. It creates a sense of mystery. It's, um, it's self-contained. It's got some beautiful storylines and some beautiful descriptive writing. So, you know, for me, it's not that Narnia goes downhill after Lion Wits and Wardrop. It's just, it's very, very difficult to sustain that brilliance after that point.
0: Now, we're going to be looking over the next seven episodes of the podcast at each of the seven books. We are, as I said at the beginning, looking in the order that they are now published. But there is a bit of controversy, isn't there, and different opinion around the order that it should be read. Why do people have strong opinions about that? And which order do you think it should be read in?
1: Well, I think that there is one point, which is the real source of controversy, and that is... Um, that the series now begins with The Magician's Nephew. And chronologically, that makes sense. That happens before The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, And Whereas in terms of order of publication, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe came first, and The Magician's Nephew actually came quite late. Um, and my problem is that I, I think that if you read The Magician's Nephew first and then read The Lion the Wits in the Wardrobe, you really find it very puzzling. For example, if you think of that very famous one-liner in um, uh, uh, Lion of Wits in the Wardrobe, none of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But you see, if you've read *Magician's Nephew*, well, you know all about Aslan, so it doesn't really work. And also, to me, one of the most brilliant things about *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* is the the subtle disclosure of Narnia. It happens slowly, Aslan is introduced very gradually in a sort of intriguing way. If you've read *The Magician's Nephew* first, well, you kind of lose that sense of disclosure. You lose that sense of mystery. So it is, I have to say, a a debate. And I personally would recommend you read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe before The Magician's Nephew. And almost see The Magician's Nephew as a prequel, which makes sense once you've read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. However, whatever order you read them in, that's your choice. I'm just saying that that's the way I would do it.
0: (laughs) And so, okay, so you would say Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, then The Magician's Nephew, and then would you carry on in the order that they are now published, or would you have a different I think once you get
1: past the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, it doesn't really matter all that much.
0: The Narnia Chronicles have been incredibly influential on lots of subsequent fiction, television, popular culture. Would you say just a little bit about some of the things that it's clearly influenced and why you think that it has stood the test of time in the way that it has?
1: I think that um, the, the Narnia series really have entered into the popular imagination. You see TV commercials, which in effect uh, are about spaciousness to say, hey, it, it, it looked like a wardrobe. <laughs> you know, but it, you know, and, and that image really, I think, has, has um, had a very big impact. And also you can see how uh, Lewis in many ways did much like Tolkien before him to popularize the genre of fantasy. And even those who would disagree with Lewis about what kind of fantasy you should write actually use the genre. So I think Lewis has, in effect, done a lot to popularise the genre of fantasy. But I think, that for me, really, um, Lewis's brilliance here is actually about, in effect, providing a way of transposing Christian ideas into this fantastic form of writing. And that, to me, is, is a very significant achievement. If we look at the, the evidence as available, I mean, the Lion, the wits and Wardrobe and other elements of the Chronicles of Narnia keep coming up in the best books people have ever read. And I think that's very important because it shows that they are still impacting on people. And my guess is that the continuation of making movies will make people go back to the novels because they'll say, well, look, clearly that the movies couldn't do justice to things. Let's go back and read them again and really enjoy it. So if you like, the movies will become, if you like, like almost like a gateway to the original novels in much the same way as the the film version of um, The Lord of the Rings forces people to go back to the original novels and gives them a new lease of life.
0: Obviously, you've highlighted lots of positive things there, Alistair, but um, I do think we need to mention the fact that there have been some criticisms levelled against the Chronicles of Narnia, um, I guess most famously by the author Philip Pullman. Um, It's clear that the books are a product of their time. You know, C.S. Lewis was writing at the time that he was writing, but some of the kind of commonly cited issues are gender stereotyping, racism, um, I mean, let's, let's look at that first one f- um, first, this sort of gender stereotyping issue. What are we meant to make of lines such as when Diggory says to Polly in The Magician's Nephew, girls never want to know anything but gossip and rot about people getting engaged? I mean, how are we meant to read that as modern readers, do you think?
1: I think we have to say that these works were written in the 1940s and early 1950s, and um, I'm afraid that that was what Britain was like at that time. And I think we have to also recognize that Lewis really worked in in, in circles that were thoroughly masculine. So for example, think of um, him growing up, you know, he, he goes to all boys schools for a while. He then goes into the British army. He goes to an Oxford college, Oxford colleges, which are entirely male. You know, Lewis really does live in a rather male world. I think that we just have to say that um, everyone who writes books is shaped by the context. You read Charles Darwin, You read for example, his Descent of Man published in 1871. It echoes very problematic racist assumptions of his day and age. That doesn't devalue the science. But it does remind us every writer is located in a context. And very often we move on radically and we leave lots of that behind. But in the works written during that period, they're still there. I think what we need to do is, in effect, just say they're there. Um, They reflect the historical context and we have to wrestle with that. But it doesn't stop us, I think, from benefiting from and enjoying what we read.
0: In The Last Battle, Susan is omitted from Aslan's country. We'll be talking a little bit more about that when we get to that episode. Um, but the way that her character is depicted is, is one of the things that Philip Pullman takes real issue with. Um, it says in the book, "In nothing, uh, She's interested in nothing nowadays except for nylons and lipsticks and invitations. She always was a jolly sight, too keen on being grown up. So Philip Pullman's response is that actually... Um, this this just proves that C.S. Lewis didn't like women. Um, he was frightened of them and he was appalled at the notion of her wanting to grow up. I mean, what do you make of some of Philip Pullman's comments there?
1: I don't... Um... Entirely approve of uh, Lewis's treatment of Susan. I have to say, mm-hmm. I don't really fully understand it. I, I mean, I, I struggle to find a good reason for the way she's treated, and I suspect he may simply have lost interest in her. I think that that might be that might be the explanation. But certainly, um, Philip Pullman is right to point out these uh, concerns. I would make the point that Lewis is a lot older than Philip Pullman and reflects certain. Um, stereotypes of his age which unfortunately are still there and I'm sure that readers 100 years from now will look at Philip Pullman's novels and say oh my goodness how could anybody say that because we've moved on massively in the intervening period so again I think uh, that there are important points to appreciate here but you have to read this in terms of their historical context that is very important we don't deny the historical context we have to learn to live with it
0: one of the other criticisms that's often levelled against the books is is allegations of racism, that actually C.S. Lewis was slightly racist towards particular characters. I think, you know, we think particularly of the Calomines. Would you say just a little bit about that? Again, is that just a product of his time or was C.S. Lewis um, being slightly racist in some of the things that he was writing about?
1: Well, again, there is an issue here. The physical description of the Calomines suggests they are... They have different skin colour from Lewis. And I think if I can just leave it like that, and that, that's a concern. Also, there's an issue as to whether Lewis is actually being anti-Islamic here, although I don't think that is the case. Again, what I would say is that Lewis was growing up in a period when there were certain British cultural stereotypes, and this i 'm afraid was one of them and again i 'd make the point that you know when you read Charles Darwin, unfortunately, you see quite similar concerns. So what I would have to say to you really is again, we just have to read these novels and in effect say well look this is this is illuminating lewis 's own context it, it doesn 't necessarily." Um, reflect well on him other than saying all of us are embedded in our context and sometimes we're a lot less critical about our own context than we ought to be. And so that that perhaps is a wake-up call to all of us to say, look, perhaps we need to be a little bit more critical of the ideas we take for granted and ask where they actually come from and whether they're right or not.
0: How do you think Lewis would respond to some of the current issues that we're facing around racial injustice at the moment?
1: It's very, very difficult to um, predict. What you could do is to say that the, the themes you find in Lewis's own writing show that he is very, very favorably disposed towards underdogs, towards those who are in effect excluded to those who are seen as inferior by a culturally dominant group. And I guess that would point you in certain directions. I think Lewis was very much concerned about issues of social justice, even though these are not actually a prominent theme in in his writings, but they're still there in Narnia's deep sense. This is not the way things ought to be. So I think we have to be careful here not to overinterpret Lewis, but we can certainly see uh, themes in his writings, which would make me think he would be sympathetic towards the issues that we're looking at right now.
0: You mentioned underdogs there. Is that, do you think, one of the reasons why children play such a prominent role in these stories?
1: I'm sure it is. Um, Lewis did take the view that as a child he, he um, was not appreciated all that much. Um, he took, take, took the view that other children were not really appreciated all that much. And in effect, there was this sense that you only can't when you get to a certain point in life. I think Lewis reacted against that. And actually that's one of the reasons why I think children's literature became so important. You think of um, Heidi, the very famous Swiss novel. I mean, it, it broke new ground precisely because it took children seriously as thinking, reflecting people. And Lewis is in effect doing something very, very similar. He's reclaiming children as in effect young human beings who are learning, but are well on their way to becoming fully thinking, reflective human beings.
0: There are quite a lot of adults uh, it, who were portrayed in in not a particularly positive light in the Narnia Chronicles. We think of un- Uncle Andrew or Eustace's head teacher. Why are some of them portrayed in this negative light, do you think?
1: I think Lewis is um, poking fun at certain social stereotypes. Uh, for example, um, certain kinds of schools which have very <laughs> advanced um social agendas, which Lewis thinks are are mad. (laughs) And he's very, very happy to say why he thinks they're mad. And in fact, of course, he engages these questions in much more detail, for example, in The Abolition of Man. He's saying there's a real problem here. But certainly, um, Lewis has a very deflationary account of self-important people. He will poke fun at them. He will make them undermine themselves in his novels. Um, And we see that, for example, in the Space Trilogy as well. That that Lewis, in effect, is is really poking fun at self-important people. I think that that's something which actually a lot of people find endearing because they they um, might share those views about certain things but again bear in mind that Lewis is Irish and um, the Irish always I think felt that they they were being patronized by the the English and I think that in effect Lewis is quite happy as an external person to poke fun at certain aspects of British culture which actually certain other British people would regard as being well self-evidently right (laughs)
0: <laughs> there's a great line isn't there in the magician's nephew where he says of uncle andrew children have one kind of silliness as you know and grown-ups have another kind which is a brilliant line i, I guess the other thing is that there's a, a slight absence of parenting uh, do you think he has intentionally left out parental relationships and and if he's done that is there a reason for lewis doing that
1: it's a very conspicuous feature of the Chronicles of Narnia. The parents, kind of way, are largely absent. They're referred to in their absence generally. And you know, that actually was quite a common trope um, in the writings of the time. Think of P.G. Woodhouse's, um, you know, Jeeves novels, Were in effect, um, Bertie Wooster. we hear nothing about his parents at all. They're clearly dead, but we don't know anything about them. So, in effect, it's a way of, in effect making you focus on the children and maybe that's a helpful um approach earlier we were talking about Lewis um trying to bring out the importance of children very often children are presented as their parents children in other words as the parents that really matter and maybe one of the reasons that Lewis does not highlight the role of parents in Narnia is he doesn't want us to see the children through the prism of the parents. In other words, he wants us to see them as people in their own right. Now, I think that's actually quite a plausible explanation for why um, parents are so inconspicuous, even absent, uh, at so many points we'd expect them to be present in Narnia.
0: Now, the narrator almost takes on a character in and of his or herself. Was, was there an intention behind that, do you think?
1: Well, that's a, a very interesting point. And I've read several views on this matter. I mean, there is this tendency to, to have an omniscient narrator who kind of is telling you what is really happening. But there are points at which I think um, Lewis subverts that, you know, perhaps... Um, implying that the narrator doesn't know everything, you know that that in effect you're taken by surprise by certain things. But I think the answer may be quite simple. I'm afraid that Lewis may be going along with convention of the time, to in effect make it easier for people to concentrate on what the narrator is actually pointing to. Again, remember one of Lewis's big themes is that a writer is someone who's saying, look at what I have seen. And if you use a, um, a writing style which distracts people from what you see, then they don't see it. And maybe Lewis is using what well, I think is a rather conventional um, way of approaching narration. You find it, for example, in uh, novels of the Edwardian period. Is actually just saying, you know, I'm going to take what everyone's expecting and then make them see something different through using it. And in effect, changing the format might well inhibit seeing what he wants them to see.
0: Over the next few shows, we are gonna be looking at specific books, but but final question, why do you think the Narnia stories are still relevant today?
1: I think they're still relevant because they they speak to us of a world in which children and those who are treated as being inferior are able to make a difference. It's like the hobbits in um, Lord of the Rings. You know, they're, they're the little things but they can make a difference. And I think that does speak to people actually quite a lot. That in effect, children are able to do certain things, to think certain things, and in doing so, they become better people. I think that, that is quite a deep thing. But also, of course, a lot of people will read them because they, they see this as a very imaginative retelling and reenacting of key Christian ideas not just doctrinal ideas but virtues like what is the virtue of faithfulness I mean we get some very good accounts of that throughout Narnia so I think many people read this because they say actually I, th- these help me visualize what Christianity is like in action not just as ideas but as lived out lives and Rowan Williams who I think is one of the most intelligent reflectors in Narnia once said he thought that uh, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia helped their readers to understand what it felt like to believe in God, what it felt like to try and live out a life of faithfulness towards God. I think that's a really important point, And I'll tell you, quite frankly, there aren't many people who can do that.
0: Brilliant. Well, I am so excited about diving into the books, but thank you so much, Alistair.
1: It's been great fun. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and over this third series, Alistair and I will be looking at some of the key themes and ideas in the Narnia Chronicles. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. Next week, we will be looking at The Magician's Nephew.